Spider-Man! Hey everybody, welcome to Sequelitis. Welcome to Sequelitis. I'm Matt. And I'm Manny. And we are here today to talk about Spider-Man Homecoming. That's right, there's a new Spider-Man movie, everybody, and it's the sixth Spider-Man movie overall, and it is the third reboot of the Spider-Man series, and finally they brought it all the way home to Marvel, and how do you think they did with it? You know, Marvel had a, had a homecoming. Spider-Man had a homecoming back into the Marvel Universe. I was hoping you'd go for that, and you did not disappoint. <laughs> you satisfied, just like this movie did. <laughs> uh, I thought it was a very satisfying movie, and honestly, this has got to be one of the best Spider-Man movies ever, if not the absolute best Spider-Man movie we've ever seen. Yeah, I, we were kind of debating whether or not to like beat around the bush a little bit, but I, I totally agree with you. It was a great movie, and uh, let's talk a little bit about why it was great uh what was this movie about manny go ahead give us the breakdown oh are we gonna jump into spoilers no no just 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 uh just start me off like what's the how's the movie start off what's it about okay well one of the things that this movie does right is it does not go into showing you like it doesn't do the mistake that's been happening with like all of these uh batman movies where they have to like show you, oh, his parents got murdered, and then all this stuff happened, and then he went into training. Oh my god. They didn't need to show him getting bit by the spider. They talked about it, and that's all we needed to know, because most people already know the backstory of Spider-Man. Yeah, the best thing about this movie is what's not in it. There's no Uncle Ben. Yeah. There's no radioactive spider. There's no camera. Oh, this was one of my favorite things about this movie. There was no Peter Parker... Parter, Peter Parker... Peter Parker picked a pack of pickled Parkers. There was no Peter Parker with a camera. I love that. I'm so, I'm, I'm over it, you know? There was no Joe Jana Jomison, J. Jonah J Jameson. This is one of the only Spider-Man movies we've had that shows Peter Parker as an actual high school student. Right. And the, the actor that played him, Tom Holland, at times didn't look like he was, you know, a 15-year-old. But he did a great job of, of acting like and sounding like someone who was not only 15, but had sort of the exciting events happening in his life to where basically like for him to be able to become a part of the Avengers would be like me when I was 15 and have the Green Bay Packers like call my mom and say like, hey, can he come to practice? And we would like to have him on the team as soon as he's able to turn pro. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, but like, you know, the person who is, is my main contact is freaking Brett Favre. And he's like, he's like, hey, Manny, I want you to come on down and, you know, I'm going to throw you some footballs. All right. You run some uh, button patterns and some out routes. I didn't, I didn't know you had NFL dreams. I didn't know that about you, Manny. <laughs> when I was 15, I sure did. I, I had NBA dreams when I was 15. I, I, I thought uh, Michael Jordan and the Bulls might call me and be like, Matt, you're the one. We need you. We need you, buddy. Anyway. Yeah, so, that's, um, that's a total tangent. But, yeah, I think, I think that's a perfect analogy. Like, Tony Stark calling this kid, Peter Parker, and saying, like, hey, I want to give you this suit. I want you to be a part of the Avengers. Like, that. It's like, it's like being called up to the pros, you know, when, when you're an amateur. I think that's a perfect analogy. Yeah, in, in the same way that, like, um, there was a lot of stories when you and I were late teens, early 20s, about all of these um, amateur age star athletes that were getting called up to the pros and how just um, the pressures of stardom 
were too much for them to handle. That That's exactly what ends up happening to Peter Parker in this movie. And it's kind of an interesting take on with great power comes great responsibility. You have Tony Stark basically like recognize this kid has great gifts and then say like, I'm going to enhance your gifts because I want to develop you into a hero. Um, and of course, because he's not a very patient person and also because the person that he's dealing with is immature and doesn't know how to be patient and doesn't know how to relax, you know, he takes it upon himself to do a lot of stuff and it makes for a really interesting story, but it also kind of lends some dynamics to this. And I, I thought this portrayal of Peter Parker and Spider-Man was, again, it was probably the best that we've seen on screen, and it was definitely the most interesting that I've seen. Yeah. Far more so than even Tobey Maguire in the first Spider-Man movie. Yeah, and I, I loved Tobey Maguire in the first Spider-Man. I loved the first Spider-Man movie, and I just watched it the other day. Really good movie, better, even better than I remember it being. Uh, so I, I definitely don't have any like love lost for that movie, but this movie was just better. Uh, one thing that made it a lot better was the villain in it. Oh God, yes. Um, you know, Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin. Like his his portrayal of the Green Goblin. I, I don't know who's at fault exactly for the way he plays that character. I, you know, I want to just say it's the director because Willem Dafoe is a great actor. I've seen him in in many, many, many movies, and it, it seems like it's one of those situations. Like if you watch that movie. Every single take that Willem Dafoe does, like it's just a little bit too like big, like it's too out there. You know, if you just would have had the director say, you know, that was like an eleven. Once you bring it down to like a seven, you know, on every single take in the entire movie, then his performance would have been better. Like it's his talent is there, and he's. It seems like he's just kind of demonstrating his full range of talent. And Sam Raimi, it's like he's not reeling him in a little bit. That's how it feels when you watch the movie. But I wasn't on set or anything, so I, I have no idea. Well, in this movie, you have uh, Michael Keaton as the Vulture, which I felt like he was kind of a Green Goblin 2.0. You know, I know they wanted to get away from the Green Goblin, but I thought he was he was a little Green Goblin-esque, but in all the right ways. Like At the same time, I wouldn't mind seeing some villains that are just totally different than the Green Goblin. The way Michael Keaton plays the Vulture in this movie is so good. He's so good. I love Michael Keaton. He's on such a great comeback right now. I can't say enough positive things about Michael Keaton. Going back to Birdman of 2015, you know, we're we're seeing a renaissance in Michael Keaton's career that's really reminding everybody that when he is given the the right material and a role that suits his strengths, that he is really an incredible actor. And I don't know if it's something to where he's just, you know, with age has gotten even better and like really kind of like found this stride playing a particular type of, like he's not even playing the same type of character. They're just characters that fit Michael Keaton very well. But I say that having just watched this film and watched Birdman and I skipped over the movie where he plays Ray Kroc. From everything I heard about that movie, uh, the faults of the movie had nothing to do with Michael Keaton's performance. We did watch uh, RoboFlop, and in that movie, he was just done a disservice by a poor script. Um, he was really trying to create something with the character. You could kind of tell what the basis of his character was, but there was just not much to work with because it was a shitty premise and a lot of terrible dialogue. Well, I, I have to issue a quick correction here. You're talking about the movie The Founder? I just bought that movie on Blu-ray. That movie is excellent. There are no flaw flaws or faults in that movie. 
I'll loan you my copy. It is a excellent fucking movie. You have got to see it. Uh, whatever you heard about it was incorrect because it's a great movie. If it's another good Michael Keaton performance, I would definitely w- w- enjoy it's, watching. It's that. one of his. I like. Well, until I saw him in the as the Vulture, I thought it was his best movie. But this his his per- portrayal of the Vulture in Spider Man may actually be a little bit better than Ray Kroc. I can't believe I'm saying that, but I just saw the movie and it was great. I mean, he's he's amazing as the Vulture. Amazing. Well, and I got to tell you, like, here's the thing about the Vulture is that one of the biggest successes that this movie had was in giving us something that very few superhero movies have given us, which is a villain of the week that actually feels threatening to uh, the main protagonist. For this movie... It was very necessary because you're showing, you're doing something with an origin story that hasn't really been done before, which is to show someone like realizing their shortcomings, foolishly like trying to like skirt around them, and then basically either putting themselves or other people into very great danger because they can't be humble about what their shortcomings are. In this movie, there was no point to where I felt like uh, Peter Parker was going to easily dismiss the Vulture. It's it's only through the actions of the Vulture himself that allows Peter Parker to kind of come out on top. And I don't think that's going to be a very big spoiler because I think most people go into this movie like expecting Peter Parker to emerge victorious at the end and to continue on to further adventures as Spider-Man. But it it does something where you and I both have seen Wonder Woman, and that's one of the biggest flaws of that movie, is that there is not any sort of interesting or compelling villain in that movie, other than if you just enjoy those villains because of their campiness. Whereas this, like, I felt like Michael Keaton played a real-life character and when you sort of like learn something about his character uh, later on in the film, I felt like that fleshed him out even more so just in a simple kind of turn of events. And that made the movie so much more satisfying. I really have to applaud the writers and whoever it was that made that decision that said, this is where we're going to take this story. This is the direction we're going to take it in because it really paid off well. And it took this from just being like another movie that you go and watch and you enjoy and then you walk away and forget about to making it something memorable and actually making you say like, hey, you know what? I want to see the further adventures of this character within this universe. Yeah, well, let's let's uh, get away from the generalities a little bit. And let's go back to some of the specifics. Um, so the way this movie starts off, I want to get your opinion about this. Wait, so are we getting into spoilers here? No, 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 no. Just talking about the movie a little bit. No spoilers. Okay. Just uh, Just talking about what happens. Uh, so early on in the movie, Peter Parker has a fellow nerd friend that wants to build a Death Star made out of Legos, and they sort of replace his old best friend from the Tobey Maguire universe, who was James Franco, who was like his frenemy, basically. They replace him with a chubby Filipino dude named Ned. What do you think about Ned as the best friend sidekick to Peter Parker? You know, I, I know that Red Letter Media, and I'm sure some other people have already made jokes about this, but there is there is a very noticeable and I think admirable level of diversity in this movie. And, you know, that's something that would be absolutely true to somebody who is growing up in Queens. I mean, you would certainly know at being a person who lived there. Uh, the, the only thing I would say is that, I hope this doesn't sound racist, but I'd feel like 
there would be a lot more Puerto Ricans and Dem- Dominicans that he would be crossing paths and going to school with. You know, they did make it a point to say, we're not just going to have this white guy with his white girlfriend and his white best friend. It's going to be a whole bunch of white people. And then, like, we're going to have, like, a black person be a bad guy and a Hispanic person be a bad guy and a uh, Muslim be, like, the terrorist that he has to thwart in Act 2 or something like that. This is a movie that felt like it was very much filled with real people, starting from the star of the movie and going all the way through to... There was this one character that popped up a couple of times in the school, and I don't even think they ever, like, revealed what his name was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Little Asian kid, and... There are a couple of moments of just like very small but very real and funny uh, comedy that was just like, okay, you're getting a peek inside this person's world, which is this guy is a budding superhero, but he's also a high school student. And so this is very much the environment that he would live in. Yeah, totally. I thought his, uh, his best friend, there are times where he got a little bit annoying, but I mean, overall, like... I enjoyed him as a character, and to me, he felt like he was sort of like another version of the best friend character who worked for the TSA from Get Out. Yeah, this movie, like, when in doubt, it went with comedy, which I think was totally the right call. And it's so refreshing after seeing movies from the DC Universe, such as Batman and Suicide Squad, where comedy is such such a foreign notion that that you, you just wonder if you're, you're all living in the same universe, period. You know, a save Wonder Woman, which was excellent. But, you know, this almost kind of seemed like a spit in the face to movies like The Dark Knight, who take a mainstream superhero that, you know, my, my, my opinion is pretty low right now of the, of the mainstream superheroes. You know, this is maybe kind of a tangent, but if I may, you know, like, when you, t- you think of a character like Superman or you think of a character like Batman, when you think about, first of all, when you think about Superman, no one's going to have done it better than Christopher Reeves. And then when you think about Batman, no one's going to have done it better than Chris Nolan and Christian Bale did with the Dark Knight series. So it's like already you're in an impossible situation where you're competing with another version of yourself that's better than yourself. You know, that's why you need a, a property like Iron Man and like Wonder Woman where it's a side character that you don't know so well that they haven't made a big mainstream movie of yet. Like, that's the kind of property you need to come into and get people's interest in and say, like, oh, this person lives in the same universe as Captain America and you know, who, whatever other character, Spider-Man, the X-Men, you know, and then that, that kind of draws people in. Say, oh, so there could be a movie later down the road that has Spider-Man and the X-Men in it. You know, yeah, maybe so. And, you know, that's what kind of draws people in. And this movie, it always went with comedy. So Ned the sidekick was like a comedy sidekick, comedy nugget. Like he was his best friend who knew his secret. Uh, He learned his secret this one night in the most hilarious way. Peter Parker comes home from fighting crime. He sneaks into his bedroom. He's so like slow and careful to sneak in all quiet. He closes the... the, Crawling on the ceiling. Yeah, he's crawling on the ceiling so smooth. He closes the window with his foot so smooth. He closes the door real gently. And then he turns around and Ned's right there. And Ned's like, what the fuck? You're (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Man. Yeah, and that was a really great moment in the film. And it was... You know, it's something that I'm, I'm sure there were some people that were watching it, and I we're we're into spoilers now. So anybody listening to this, that's not like, a spoiler. Skip to that's the last like spoiler. 15, 20 minutes of the podcast, 
And we're going to talk about Baby Driver then, um, which if you haven't seen that, then just... (laughs) (laughs) Objection. Objection, Your Honor. That is not a spoiler. Had I known that was going to happen when I watched that scene, it would have lessened my enjoyment of it. So I, I was glad that I went into it and didn't know that was what was about to happen there well because when he yeah. drops the death star on the floor and just his face, <laughs> it was hilarious and it was it was one of those like fun moments to where it's like all right i'm enjoying this movie i'm having fun watching it and then it doesn't just it doesn't just kind of like try and coast on that it keeps working all the way throughout even to even to that very last like post-credit scene like it keeps working throughout and it definitely deserves a lot of accolades for not not relenting in the effort that it was applying all throughout the film. Well, I, you know, I would say if that's a spoiler, which maybe it is, maybe you're right. If that's a spoiler, then maybe this is where we're going to start spoiling the movie because I do want to talk about the specifics a little bit because that's what's really fun about these discussions, you know, not the general talking about the movie in, in, in code. It's like really talking about what really happened in the movie. And uh, I don't think this is a spoiler, but maybe you will. But what did you think about Spider-Man's suit basically being another Iron Man suit, like a talking AI suit? What did you think about that? I thought it was something interesting. And I feel like I want to give them credit and say that they knowingly were trying to lampoon Um, something that basically the MCU made more of like a mainstream sort of thing in the Iron Man movies. But that is like the superhero, like with the um, amazing kind of catch-all Swiss Army knife suit that can sit there and just basically do everything for him. And I feel like this movie was sort of playing around with that notion and saying like, well, what if you put this on somebody who didn't know how to use it and then watch kind of hilarity ensued? And I really enjoyed that. I'm glad that that's the choice that they decided to make and the direction that they went in. Because had they just done the thing to where it's like, all right, we we unlocked the training wheels protocol and now the full suit is available to you. And it's like, would you like to go into kill mode? And he's like, fuck yeah, let's do kill mode. And then he just starts killing everybody. Like even when he does interrogation mode with the suit, like that was a funny scene. And it still like propelled the plot forward. It wasn't just something to where they're just like, oh, we're going to do this purely for the sake of comedy. Yeah. Um, they did have it like be part of the plot, but it was something to where that's why this is a great film as opposed to just a good film or just an average to a bad film was that they bothered to sit there and say like, we're going to do something here that we could just go through the paces, but why not go for extra effort? You know, something you just made me re- realize was the whole kill mode. Like, they did several references to that. Like, either two or three references to it. And, like, the re- restraint that it took to not, at the end of the movie, like, have Spider-Man go into kill mode. Like, I thought for sure that was coming. Like, the the restraint for him not to go into kill mode is actually incredible now that I think about it. Because I, I would have done it, for sure. Yeah, and also, Spider-Man is a character that, similar to Batman... He has a no-kill policy, um, but unlike Batman, like Batman, <laughs> Batman will basically like put someone into a coma or paralyze this person for life in pursuit of what he considers to be justice. Whereas Spider-Man's whole thing is like, I'm gonna see you committing a crime, and I'm gonna try and stop you from committing the crime. But I'm shooting webs at you. I'm basically like I'm leaving you tied up in a web so the police can come and arrest you, as opposed to like 
punching you so hard that you will need facial reconstructive surgery and your life will never be the same after this moment. <laughs> that is not something that, that Peter Parker does. And in fact, there's one person in the movie that basically their life gets tragically altered uh, after an encounter with Spider-Man. And it is something to where like that kind of plays back, but you see it's one of those things to where it's almost like that person was like collateral damage, even though they were a bad guy. Whereas like Batman, I've got to imagine like every single Batman movie, like basically every time Batman goes out to fight crime, there's like three or four guys that are left with like huge pins sticking out of their arms or like wearing a neck halo, like the guy in Fight Club, you know. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about too, while, while we're still kind of close to talking about his suit, but uh, so his AI for his suit, it's a female voice and he goes on to name her Karen, which was, was kind of funny. One of the best things that I think came out and I feel like this was sort of a, um, they were throwing a little bit of shade at the original Spider-Man movies, the Sam Raimi ones. But at one point, after he saves his classmates in the Washington Monument, he's hanging upside down and the girl he's got a crush on, Liz, she's standing basically face to face to him, but he's hanging upside down. And the suit tells them, they're like, this is your chance, Peter. Go for it. Kiss her. <laughs> I felt like they were definitely like trying to set up, like everybody in the audience, their minds are like, oh yeah, like that scene in <laughs> Spider-Man 1 or 2, One. where they had the upside down kiss, which was so fucking cheesy. Like I groaned so hard when I watched that scene and I watched it and the way that they had that play out, it was absolutely fucking hilarious. Well, I could, I could say with a hundred percent confidence that you are totally out of line. That was a great kiss and a great moment. From <laughs> the first Spider-Man movie. <laughs> but you do feel like the scene in this movie, they were totally like dogging on that, right? They definitely were. I mean, they were throwing a little bit of shade at it. They were they were kind of saying like, "Hey, this isn't your grandpa's. We're, we're grandpa, by the way. Yeah. But this isn't your grandpa's Spider-Man. You know, this is a uh, new Spider-Man." Speaking of grandpa, they did have the obligatory Stanley cameo in this. Are you getting tired of the Stanley seeing Stanley in these movies? You know what? When he popped up in this, I was like, "Oh, there he is!" And it was kind of one of those things to where, like, you know, I've seen so many of these movies now that you kind of go into them expecting, like, you got to have a checklist of this is what's going to happen, this is what I've got to expect to see here. But when he popped up this time, that was part of like this funny sequence to where, you know, in a lot of these movies, you'll have your montage sequence. It shows them trying to figure out, like oh, how do, how do I do this? And what does this do? And trying to figure out how to be a superhero and like practicing all their moves. Whereas in this one, it was, he already had full confidence in his ability to do a lot of stuff. But basically like he didn't know how to go out and like battle criminals. So it was just these scenes of like him kind of patrolling his own neighborhood. And at one point, like he's trying to like give a woman directions. And the part with Stan Lee, that was pretty funny, too, because you see him, like, stopping what looks like a car robbery, and then everyone starts yelling at him. They're like, that's his car. What are you doing? <laughs> and then that's when Stan Lee pops up, and it was pretty funny. Well, you know who doesn't, give enough, who doesn't get enough credit for Stan Lee is Kevin Smith. Dude, Kevin Smith put Stan Lee in Mallrats, and if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't even get the joke. Like, I know who Stan Lee is because he has, like, a small part in Mallrats, which is a movie I love. It's like, that's why I even know who Stan Lee is. Like, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't get those jokes at all. Yeah. It would just be like, hey, there's that same guy that you see in every 
one of these movies for no explicable reason whatsoever. <laughs> There's that old fuck that keeps popping up all the time. Who is this old fucking bastard? Um, but I I loved the uh, the Spider-Man, Iron Man style suit. I loved the idea that Iron Man built the suit. You know, there was a couple of ways that Marvel ushered in the Spider-Man universe into the Marvel universe, and they were all so smooth. You know, one was the great Iron Man style suit. Uh, the other was the enemies of the Avengers. Their leftover tech was the leftover scrap tech that the bad guys of the Spider-Man universe were were salvaging to create some of their uh, some of their bad stuff. And I loved the way they used the alien tech. Yeah. Uh, one of the things they did was they had a device where they would put it onto a truck or onto a wall or onto a door, and they created like a temporal, you know, f- uh, phase shift or whatever you want to call it, which is uh, very reminiscent of like uh, Star Trek, the next generation <laughs> jargon that you would hear a lot about phase shifting. And they basically create like a door where you could where you could reach your hand through a door and you could get what was on the other side, which is a perfect, you know, bank robbing mechanism as a perfect thief mechanism. I loved it. Yeah, that's that's something to where I think a lot of people are going to kind of overlook that. But if anywhere where you want to praise this movie, not just as a superhero, but as specifically an MCU superhero movie, is it the fact that instead of doing something like what they did in Ant-Man, where they shoehorned in the MCU as you know, a couple of scenes in this movie to the detriment of the movie overall. What they chose to do with this movie was to say that we're going to set this character and this story firmly within the events of the Avengers storyline and make those things a part of the story about these characters. And so then, you know, as they're, as they're going throughout the story, like whenever Iron Man does pop in and like even, even the couple of cameos that you get from Captain America, like those are things that happen to where, you know, it, it becomes like something that it, it, it doesn't feel forced or out of place in this movie. It's sort of like, yeah, like I get why this is happening. These are events that happened to people that lived in this city. And this is sort of the result of that. Whereas like, a lot of other movies, you know, you take the DCU movies where it's like, yeah, some shit happened and, um, you know, we're going to reference that and then we're just going to quickly move on from right. it. This is sort of like these are people living in the aftermath of it and then this is how those events affected their lives, which is how we got to the story that we're at right now. Uh, and I think you made a great point about Ant-Man. I never really thought about that, but they did. They shoehorned in several elements from the Marvel Cinematic Universe and it also seemed kind of like against the will of the movie a little bit. Like they shoehorned in certain things that you're like, well, that doesn't need to be in there, you know, at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, so much so to the point that you had the director of another movie I want to talk about, Baby Driver, Edgar Wright. He walked away from making what I think would have been a great movie, a great version of Ant-Man, and something he really wanted to do. I mean, something that was basically like a passion project for him because they forced him to add in these unnecessary scenes to make it part of their cinematic universe to where it's just like, look, like create the character first and then bring him into the cinematic universe. I mean, that's part of the reason why I enjoy the Guardians of the Galaxy movies right now because... 
you don't have these other characters popping in. These are movies that are about these characters. But to sit there and say that, and also to say like, man, I felt Iron Man, his role in this movie, and even his driver, his assistant, Happy, their roles in this movie like fit in pretty well. Like It didn't feel like it was forced into the movie. It didn't feel like it was breaking from the actual story of the movie to have one of those two characters pop in. Every time I see John Favreau as Happy, the only thing I can think about is how that one time in Iron Man 2, he lost all that weight. Because he was like, oh, Happy's going to have his own movie, or Happy's going to be a big part of the Marvel Universe. And then he like immediately gained it back, which I can relate to, because I love to lose weight and then gain it back. <laughs> so I can totally relate to that, but it's like... It's you so and I funny. both, buddy. <laughs> he's so, he's I'm, so I'm no longer movie. the fattest I've ever been, but I'm also not the skinniest I've ever been either. <laughs> But yeah, it doesn't make me feel bad because I always, every time I see John Favreau, I think about how he was responsible for one of my favorite movies, which is Swingers. Yeah. And man, you go back and rewatch that movie, and it's this crazy time capsule of like John Favreau and Vince Vaughn were so young and so thin. Yeah. And, you know, you look at him now and you're like, God damn, like, is that what I look like now? <laughs> But I love yeah. I love uh, John Favreau. Like I, I love the fact that he didn't kind of fade away the way a lot of other like '90s filmmakers did. '90s independent filmmakers. Like he's he's managed to find a way to stay on and stay relevant. Yeah. Well, John Favreau is even more interesting than that because like you could tell that he wanted to direct Swingers, but because of the situation and the way things happen, you know, the, his friend Doug Liman ended up directing it. And Doug Liman had a very has had a very decent career, but you could tell that yeah. like John Favreau in the stories where, where he tells about the movie, like he wanted to direct it and he immediately got into directing like right after that. And it wasn't until 2008's Iron Man where his career really took off. And it, it it's weird cuz it's 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 kind of a mix of like He's obviously not Edgar Wright, you know, he's not the kind of director that's going to come in, throw his weight around and, and quit a project. Like, you know, he's going to come in, he's going to he's going to say his piece, but basically he's going to try to get whatever the studio wants to have done, he's going to try to get it done. You know, that that's that seems like his kind of deal, which I which I understand because that would be the same way. You know, if they if I was the director of Ant-Man and they said you got to put in these obligatory scenes, I would say, "Okay, yeah, you know, let's put them in." You know, what am I going to quit the job over it no i'm not you know so yeah let's put them in you know so so i get it i feel like edgar wright had like his specific reasons for not wanting to do that and for being willing to walk away from the project and it sucks because i do feel like we were robbed of what could have been a much better movie but that's sort of the price you pay to to have all these things sort of like fit into something. And at this point, I'm going to go back and rewatch Civil War. And I'm actually kind of looking forward to watching Thor Ragnarok because that just looks interesting. Mm. And I hope what they do is they continue to use the Hulk as a uh, supporting character in movies as opposed to saying like, let's make another Hulk movie because we don't need another <laughs> fucking Hulk movie. Bruce Banner is about the most boring fucking character in all of cinema, and we've had several films and TV shows to prove it to this point. So let's keep doing what we're doing, where we, we do Planet Hulk and that whole like crazy storyline of Peter Parker going into space and coming back with the symbiote suit, so that way we can get to fucking Venom, which is one of my favorite fucking characters, and I just want to see a good goddamn portrayal. And if they're able to do the things with that character that they were able to do with Spider-Man and Spider-Man Homecoming, then I think I'm going to end up being really fucking happy and ecstatic. 
Yeah, I remember being so excited about the symbiote suit when they were going to do it in Spider-Man number three. I remember walking around and talking to my friend about it to like no end. Even though I, I never read Spider-Man comic books, but it's like if you can really do this long-form storytelling, you can get the symbiote suit, you can get to Venom. That's incredible, you know? And, and they're going to do it again. And th- that's okay with me. Um, I, I don't think they're going to be able to do it this well again after this iteration. I think Marvel is going to get it. At a certain point, they're going to get into a rut. And I, I do have a, an official predictor for when that rut is going to hit. I don't know if I should give my predictor here on Sequelitis. Maybe I should. I will. I, my prediction is that when they go to recast Iron Man, when they go to recast Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, that is when they are going to fuck <laughs> up. <laughs> That's my prediction. That's like anytime you and I have played basketball together and like you have your go-to shots and you just hit it every single time, like that's an easy one to make right there. Because <laughs> there, if there's definitely like if you see a speed bump coming up for the MCU, it's definitely when they have to basically replace the most charismatic, dynamic actor that they have outside of Tom Huddleston. He's more than that, though. He's the glue of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's not Sam Jackson, that's for goddamn sure. You could replace him with David Hasselhoff and it would be fine. Yeah, I mean, it would basically be like if uh, Disney were to sit there and say, like, after the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, uh, Johnny Depp died of a heroin overdose, but we're going to make another movie and we're just going to recast Jack Sparrow. Well, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean is a different scenario because those movies have never been good from the word go. You know, they've been profitable. No, the first one is the first one is fun and entertaining, and the second one is not a bad film at all. It's just not as good as the first one. Yeah, well, I don't personally agree with you. I don't think the first two are good. I don't think the third or the fourth or the fifth one are good. And, and I feel like, yeah, you could replace Captain Jack Sparrow and you would be in a world of trouble, of course. But the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a little bit bigger than the Pirates of the Caribbean Universe, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I would have to say that, you know, Robert Downey Jr., even at this moment in his career, he's hitting that upper echelon that Johnny Depp was able to climb to with his first portrayal of Jack Sparrow. Agreed. It's basically like everyone's saying like, man, this guy can do no wrong. And I mean, maybe that's where uh, Michael Keaton is kind of getting to right now with the fact that he was he was great. And he was so perfect as not only a villain in this movie, but as playing a real person with very easily identifiable motivations. And it was something that wasn't like he didn't want to go out and destroy the world and it had nothing to do with a blue laser shooting up into the sky. He was somebody that you understood what he was trying to do. You didn't need him to like give you like endless expository dialogue about like, we're going to do this and this is our 12-point plan. And now we're moving on to phase three. And in phase three, this is what's going to... Like, there was none of that. You saw him in the beginning of the movie. You got a good understanding of exactly, like, who he was, what his goals were, what motivated him. And then by the time you really get that last piece of important information about his character by the third act, then you're just like, oh, man. Like, it gave you, like, an emotional response to sort of how you were rooting for this movie to end. And um, even even after the resolution of the movie, like knowing like his relation to other characters within the movie, um, 
you know, that ended up uh, paying off because then you're just like, okay, like I see this character's uh, emotional response right now and I understand exactly why they feel that way. And I can see Peter Parker's emotional response and I can understand why he feels this way. And then that goes into the whole thing. And I think a lot of superhero movies overlook this of someone trying to protect the alter ego that they have, their, their secret identity. And you have that with Peter Parker and it's something that plays all throughout the movie. I mean, going back to when you're talking about his best friend, Ned, and his whole anxiety over Ned exposing his uh, secret identity of being the Spider-Man, seeing it, seeing it play out that way for comedic purposes, but then also seeing it play out to where realizing like he's in danger, other people are in danger, and also like realizing like if people know who I am, that's going to affect my relationship with these people. And as much as I want to say to them like, hey, look, here's a bit of truth that maybe you need to know to, uh, to understand what's going on. I can't tell you these things. You know, that's going to affect how you feel about me. Well, I got a couple things to say. First of all, I want to say I appreciate you agreeing with me about the Robert Downey Jr. thing. I know you're doing it snidely as if like, oh yeah, of course, but I haven't heard a lot of people make that prediction. In my opinion, it, it, it's an of course as well. Of course, you know, once they replace that dude, that is going to be, that's going to be trouble. I'm not blowing smoke into your butt here. Like, I, I honestly think if there is some way that they're going to fuck this all up, it'll definitely come at that point. Yeah. Uh, but I can also see how they can basically minimize Iron Man's overall role in this cinematic universe because you have that with the third Iron Man movie and even within this movie to where he's like, look, I don't need to be in the suits. He's like, the suits can go out and do their own thing. That's why I built them the way that I did. Yeah, and, and they'd be, they would be wise to kill him off and to not replace him. But I'm telling you, when they try to replace him, that is going to be the trouble. Okay, so there's some other things about this movie that I want to talk to before we wrap it up. And we're almost done talking about Spider-Man. You know, well within the spoilers realm, what did you think about the scene where Peter Parker goes to pick up his date for homecoming and the dad turns out to be the vulture? What did you think about that scene? I mean, that's the, the twist that I was talking about in this movie. And that was something to where at first when I saw that, when I saw him answer the door, I was like, oh, fuck, he figured out who Peter Parker is. And now he's lying in wait for him at this girl's house. And then I was like, no, he's the dad. I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. And like, I, I literally got excited in that moment because I was like, they're doing something fucking interesting. And I know that I've seen something similar in, in a movie that I've, I've watched before and, and probably a couple of movies, but I've never seen a superhero movie do something like this that is so interesting and to really put the main character in this like huge uh, dilemma to where he's just like, I don't know how to react in this situation. And then they took it even further because they could have very easily like had him like show up and he's like, Oh yeah, like take a photo and everything. But no, then they do the whole kind of like, it's almost like an, I love Lucy plot to where he's like, Oh yeah, I'll drive you guys to the dance. And he's like, no, 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 you don't have to do that. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going that way. Anyway, I got to go out of town. I got to catch, I got to catch a flight. <laughs> and so he's driving them. And then in the course of the conversation, like Peter's like sitting there and he's like, I don't want to say anything. But then, you know, his date is like, yeah, like it's kind of weird. Like all these times where Spider-Man shows up, like you're not there. <laughs> 
Like, you were at my party, but then you disappeared. <laughs> Even though that was a very convenient thing for her to say, like, I found that totally believable. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say too much here, but I have heard people volunteer certain pieces of information that they should not be volunteering, and that felt so real to me. I was like, people really do volunteer that kind of information. They don't understand how important it is. They don't understand how telling it is to someone who's listening. And I, I love the fact that... Well, I mean, she's got no way of even knowing that she's blowing up his spot right there. No, but she's volunteering information that the dad doesn't need to overhear. You know, anyone who, who can understand the idea of volunteering information, it's a very prevalent idea when you think about, like, detecting things and learning things that you're not supposed to know. If, you, if you're talking to somebody and they start... Like, for example, you know the grocery store by my house that I always go to? You know, I went in there one day, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm buying this, whatever. I'm checking out. And the, the lady was like, oh, yeah, you're not going to be able to buy this much longer. We're closing down. Yeah, June, June, we're closing down for two years. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. It's like, I didn't ask you any of that information. <laughs> you volunteered to me all this information. And what does that tell me? That tells me you just learned that information this day, today. And it's on your mind. You're thinking about it. You're talking about it. And it's like, you, you know, you give away so much more than you think you give away when you volunteer information. She volunteered all this information about all the different times that Peter had disappeared. Well, you disappeared in D.C., and then you disappeared again in this place over here, and then you disappeared over there. And I love the fact that the filmmakers and, the, and Michael Keaton as an actor and the screenwriters, they, they trusted in you to understand that that would be enough information for him to say, for sure, this is... Spider-Man, and he was right, and that was a great fucking scene. Loved it. Yeah, and loved it. And that's part of the reason why I like this film. And I know you already said that you would love to go back and rewatch it again. Oh, I'd love to. I, I might go back and rewatch it again because it was just it was a fun experience of sitting in the theater and watching it. But to have a scene like that, to where you're sitting there and like you're thinking to yourself. Oh, okay, what's going to happen here? Like, is he going to figure it out? How is this going to end up for the characters? And that's the fun thing. Like, it's something to where it's three people sitting together in a car. This is an action movie. This is a superhero, big-budget action movie with a huge team to make all these special effects. And one of the most compelling scenes of this movie is three people sitting together in a car where one person knows something and another person in the car doesn't know this information but you're waiting for them to learn it because then it's going to change the dynamic of the relationship between all three characters. And then you watch that play out. For us as writers, those are the sort of like dream scenarios that we want to try and create whenever we're sitting down to write a script is to create these characters and then to build this world and these scenarios to where things come together to where someone knows something that someone else doesn't. And then there you have this interplay between the characters and you watch that information get exchanged and then those relationship dynamics shift. I'm sure there are some people that watched it and maybe it didn't resonate with them, but I guarantee you the vast majority, and this is the reason why so many people like this goddamn film, there's stuff like that to where even if they didn't consciously realize that's what's happening, they were like, oh, this is rewarding to watch this. Then on top of that, you have all this icing on top of the cake, which is all of these action scenes. And for those, we, we haven't even really talked about that much, but... It's not one of those things to where like you have a bunch of like fighting and punching and all all kinds of other shit going on to where you can't tell what's happening. Like 
there is stuff going on to where you see like these characters like fighting and battling and like it's it's all things that are germane to the character of Spider-Man. Even if you're vaguely familiar with Spider-Man, you're watching him do things to where you're like, yeah, that's a Spider-Man thing to do. And that's a uniquely Spider-Man action to take. And he's at the same time making quips. He's doing things that are perfectly within the character of Spider-Man. It ends up being something that's rewarding, and at the same time, they bother to do stuff where they show real-world consequences of people that have abilities to cause mass destruction and how that could affect the other just innocent civilians that are caught in the crossfire. And they do it more than once. I love the movie for doing that. That's a great uh, fin uh, finishing speech. Let me do a finishing rant, and then we'll move on to the next subject. I'm not completely done yet, because I actually do have some criticism of this movie. Oh, I don't know if you have any criticisms, but I have a very specific criticism for this movie. Well, okay, well, let me, let me do my last positive bit. and then I, I don't have a lot of criticisms, but I am interested to hear yours. Okay. And usually I'm very critical, so uh, this will be, be great. Um, but... My last praise of this movie is the fact that this movie taps into what people narratively love about comic books, which is that you read one story, it's completely its own story, beginning, middle, and end, it's its own story. But there are these connections to other stories. There are these connections to a great universe that all these books are inside of. Like That's what people love about comic books. And, and this reimagined it in a way for movies in a way that was amazing. You know, the fact that you could take the damage from the Avengers number one, I think that that was referencing, and take the technology that Tony Stark has created that didn't really exist in the comics as far as I know, this like ultra tech, like AI, like maybe in a, in a whisper, in a whim it existed, but this is a, the, the movie idea. And the way I understand it is for Tony Stark's suit to be AI and then for him to pass that onto this suit. He created this suit. You know, we've seen him create a suit before. We've seen him create a shield. We 100% believe without seeing any evidence that he could go home and create this suit. You know, that's what they've done with the Tony Stark character. That's what t that's what makes this universe amazing is that if you have Tony Stark walk in and say I built this suit for you, it does 255 different kind of web combinations. I believe it. You know, and that's an amazing feat for them to pull off. They've connected each one of these movies in a way. And this leads me to a question I wanted to ask you, Manny, if you don't mind answering. Just uh, just go ahead. Like, how, how do you imagine go, going back and watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Like, when you get a little bit older, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when you want to kind of revisit it, when it's all over. Like, how do you imagine revisiting the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Like, what is it to you? Uh, I think that... When I go back and rewatch a lot of these films, and I've got to be honest, I've only probably watched about half to two thirds of all of the MCU films. But I got to say, like, there's going to be the films that I already like that when I go back and rewatch them, uh -huh. I'm going to identify all the things that I originally liked about the movies. But then I'm going to find further things to where I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I noticed this the first time around, but now I'm seeing it and now I really like it. And of course, there's going to be some things to where I'm going to be like, oh man, I don't know how I didn't notice this before, but this is kind of like annoying me. But they've done a great job of like casting like so many of these roles. There's been some great directors to come on. There's been some great storylines that they've done. They've done a lot of cliche things, but there's been a lot of like really original moments and a lot of really rewarding moments to where I feel like it's going to make it worthwhile to go back, rewatch these films and to rediscover what it was that was so appealing, not just to me personally, but to 
so many millions of other people at the same time. Yeah. And that's something you're not going to get with like shit like with Transformers or most of the DCU. Uh, well, and I totally agree with you. And I also feel like, you know, one interesting possible side effect of this movie could be that because it's so connected to the MCU that it won't have that individualism that the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi had. Like, if you go back and you watch that movie, there's no other movie that it's connected to. Like, that's its own movie, literally. But this movie, if you haven't seen a hundred hours of Marvel films, you're not going to get the deepest cut of the jokes. Like, is the movie going to survive past that criticism, in your opinion? Yes. Yeah, I think I think if you haven't watched any other Marvel film, you can walk into this movie, and I think that Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man is such a big part of the public zeitgeist Good word. that I think for somebody that, that has never seen any of the Iron Man films, that they're still going to sit down, watch this movie, and they're going to be like, okay, maybe the prologue to this film, I don't understand what's happening there, but for the rest of the film, I get who the character is, and I understand exactly what's happening, and I understand the motivations of the character, and the things that are happening. And again, not to continuously heap praise onto this movie, but for the fact that they did an incredible job of showing what it would be like to take a young, ambitious, good-hearted, but ultimately immature person and then give them incredible abilities and then watch them like struggle to find the best use of those. And I mean, there's times where Peter Parker does things as Spider-Man, to where you're like, okay, like, this is something that an adult wouldn't do, but I could totally buy someone who's 15, 16 years old and, and struggling to, like, discover what their identity is and watch them do these things. And, you know, that combined with so many other things is what made this not just a good film, but a rewarding film to watch. And it's funny to sit there and, like, be so blown away by that, saying, like, Here's a movie that bothered to like make it worth my while to watch it. Despite the criticism that I do want to heap on this, it well overcomes that just by making it worth my while to watch the damn movie. Well, you said you still have some criticisms to it. Uh, let me let me lead off with uh, I don't know if this is a criticism, but I just thought about this while I was watching the movie, or while I was listening to you talk about the movie. And I was thinking about the movie again, and I was thinking. If you were Spider-Man, if you had all these powers and you had this, you know, super hot homecoming date, you know, ultimately you're trying to get with her, you know, at what point would you say, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not that worried about this giant fire in the middle of the city, like, I probably can't even put it out, you know, like, I'm trying to get with this girl tonight. Did you feel like it really explained why he wanted to be a superhero so bad? Like, I felt like that part of the movie was maybe missing a little bit. Well, I think that with this movie that what was so like heavily laid out in the previous two iterations of Spider-Man was that he was a character that was ultimately racked with guilt for having not done more to help the people in his lives using his incredible powers. Whereas in this movie, it's it, it kind of like eschews that to say like, Here's a guy that so badly, like, he idolizes people like Tony Stark that he wants to do whatever he can to prove himself to them. And, like, as much as any 15-year-old male in America 
wants to go out and not just get laid, but to hook up with the person of your dreams, that for them to, to see this moment to be like, man, I could achieve legendary status if I do something. And for this, I think it has more implications towards like, he doesn't have a father figure in his life and they didn't go real heavy handed with it, but they hinted at it just enough that if you paid attention, you realize that he looks at Tony Stark as a father figure and even happy for him, he sees happy as a means to get approval from Tony Stark. Right. And so as much as he wants to hook up with this girl, he would much rather like have Tony Stark come to him and be like, you know what? I'm proud of you. You did good today. And so that's why he's willing to walk away from his date more than once. But it's homecoming. And go and do some superhero but shit. You can go do superhero shit Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Like, this is Friday night. It's homecoming. <laughs> like, don't you put it away for one night. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to realize, like, that was the whole point of showing the montage of him, like, sending these endless stream of messages to happy saying like hey i'm out of school i'm ready for my next mission let me know if you need me and no response no response no response and him like going out and, and sometimes like over exceeding like the things that he should be doing to try and actually like help people because he's looking for that opportunity to prove something to someone and that is the thing that is top of mind for him damn near 24 7. Do you feel like the movie earned that or did you put that in the movie without the movie earning it? No, I mean, I feel like that was something that the movie tried to do very subtly. And, and honestly, I got to give it credit for that to not just like have scenes to where you, you throw in dialogue of Peter being like, if I could just get approval from Tony Stark, it could make up for my Uncle Ben being dead and my dad for being wherever the fuck he is. Like it doesn't bother to do that at all. What are your nitpicks? I have to know at this point. What are your what are your criticisms of it? You love okay. this movie, it sounds like. So I've got one small one and one big one. Go ahead. My small one is that his whole relationship with his crush Liz, I didn't feel like there was really much chemistry between those two characters at all. And I got that like I agree with you there. I mean the actress that played her is a beautiful girl. Um, and I could see why like someone would like look up at her and be like, oh my God, the girl is gorgeous. And I got to say, like, even though they did nail some like really good stuff about the high school scenes, overall, I think they basically left out like sort of the way that like high school cliques would work and sort of like the strata that a girl like that would fit into versus like the world that someone like Peter Parker and his buddy Ned and even MJ yeah. where they would find themselves. They were kind of cheap with that. I agree with you because she was supposed to be like basically a cheerleader type of girl mm -hmm. and then she was on the the club for the smartest people, the geek club or whatever it was called. That was a little cheap. Yeah, and I can even tell you like even even if you sit there and say like okay, well we're going to kind of like level out her level of attractiveness versus like his level of attractiveness. That's very nitpicky, though. You have to admit that's nitpicky. <laughs> yeah, it's nitpicky, but at the same time, like, I'm someone who went to high school. Like, I, I understand exactly how high school dynamics worked. Yeah, I went to high school, too. Yeah. Everybody went to high school. If she's a girl who's a senior and he's somebody who's a sophomore, you would have to be, like, the most stud-heavy sophomore to be able to even have a chance at a girl who's not only a senior, but is kind of mid-tier in terms of like the hottest senior girl out there. Okay, okay, okay. But you got to imagine that if you had art class, there could be a hot girl in art class for sure. 
if you were in band, there would be at least one like hottest band girl, at least one. You know, like there's like this is this is related. Yeah, I mean, again, like. This is something to where, like, I don't want to make a big deal out of it because it's honestly nitpicking. It's nitpicking big time. B-T, <laughs> but big I don't, time. No, I don't, I don't think I'm nitpicking to sit there and say that the actors themselves did not have great chemistry that made me believe. Wait, is this the small one or the big one? No, this is still part of the small nitpick. Like, those two characters, like, didn't have a lot of chemistry. What's the big one? Let's hear it. Give it but to I me. But I honestly, like, I'm hold curious. on, hold on. I'm super curious. I honestly don't think <laughs> that it really matters that much because they don't, they did not intend to have those two characters to get, get together. Yeah. Ultimately, Zendaya, who played MJ, like, she is somebody that throughout the film, if you're paying attention, she is obsessed with Peter. And yeah, I saw that. They're ultimately meant to get together. Like, that's going to be, like, his, like, big love interest, like, going forward as long as they don't recast the actress. Yeah, she, she goes out of her way to be in every group that he's in against her best interest. Yeah. They even, like, give you one last little piece of it toward the end of the film where she's like, where do you got to go to? What do you got going on? And then she's like, I'm just kidding. I don't really care. But she does. Like, she wouldn't say anything if she didn't yeah, care. Yeah, she does. Like, she's always following this I guy agree. around. That's not a nitpick, though. That's a good moment. What's your big nitpick? I have to hear it. Give it to me, Manny. My big nitpick, and I have to give credit to Max Landis for really pointing this out. But, like, I remember, like, I walked away from the movie, and I saw it with my coworker. And my coworker is like, he's a guy. He went and watched The Fate of the Furious with me. Mm. And, like, he walked away, like, just, he was ecstatic about that movie. Nice guy. Like, he was like, oh, my God, that movie was awesome. I love that movie. <laughs> and I was like, dude, that movie sucked. That movie was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, really? Why? And I was like, honestly, dude, I don't have time to explain it. But you know what? Like, go on iTunes, subscribe to Sequelitis, download the episode when it comes out. You can hear the whole conversation about the thing. It's great. Well, because I, I, I half agree with him. Like, it was awesome, like, for a few minutes. Like, they pulled it off, but then it, the whole thing fell apart like crazy. But I... I <laughs> yeah, but wait until we get to Baby Driver. Baby Driver is the greatest Fast and Furious movie ever. <laughs> I know. And I say that having only seen one. <laughs> but so when I walked out of this movie, because he went and watched this movie with me as well, but he turned to me and he was like, hey, he's like, what did you think about that movie? And I said, man, I love that movie, but there's something about it. Like, I know there's something about this movie that kind of bothers me. I just got to take a little time to like think about it. And so I went on our Twitter handle and I was kind of scrolling through some stuff. And one of the few people that I saw offering a criticism of the movie was Max Landis. He said, look, I loved Spider-Man Homecoming, but there's one thing that really bothers me. And then he had attached some screenshots of some notes that he wrote about it. And when I started reading through the notes, I was like, that's it. That's the thing that bothers me about this movie. What it is is that before, like in the previous iterations of Spider-Man, they went real heavy-handed with punishing Peter for being a young, immature person with great power that was irresponsible with that power. This movie totally throws that out the window. There is almost no consequences whatsoever for Peter Parker's actions in this movie. And I feel like that's something to where that was kind of a huge missed opportunity to transcend what this movie was, mm -hmm. again, like this is a movie that I'm going to say is like an eight to nine out of 10. Whereas if you found the perfect way to had uh, Peter like watch, you know, Aunt May or Ned 
or, or even the guy that runs his favorite sandwich shop in all of Queens to realize like he played a part in them getting seriously injured or killed and then watch that kind of inform his actions throughout the rest of the movie. That would have been a way to really like transcend into that upper tier of a superhero movie. Well, hold on, hold on though. I, I have to rebut this criticism a little bit. Because what you're talking about is the tragedy aspect of Peter Parker. Yes. Which always exists with Peter Parker. There's always tragedy. I feel like this movie, one of its main goals was to not have the tragedy. So I feel like you're you're kind of faulting it for one of its main goals. If you're happy with the product. But this movie also serves to sort of like cement the foundations that form the identity of Peter Parker as Spider-Man. But that's one of the things that they absolutely leave out. And like, not only do they not punish him in a major way by taking away one of the people that is closest to him, but they don't even bother to punish him for doing things like, you know, when it comes to the whole scene on the ship, which was a great scene, the, the Staten Island Ferry, like that was a fantastic scene. Mm -hmm. But even Iron Man, Tony Stark himself comes out of the Iron Man suit to chastise Peter and be like, look, you fucked up. Like, and you didn't just like fuck up in like a small way as you've done before, but you fucked up in a tremendous way that put people's lives in danger. And then his punishment for Peter is to take away the suit that he gave him that allowed him to put himself in that position in the first place. And what ends up happening at the end of this movie is Peter supposedly redeems himself by putting himself in danger to stop the vulture from robbing all of this like really valuable weaponry from Tony Stark. But at the same time, like the thought that I had in the back of my head was like, had he not foiled the FBI apprehension of the Vulture and his team, this never would have happened in the first place anyway. So he caused the problem that he's now trying to solve. And I think there was not enough attention paid to that. The fact that there are a lot of things that happened in this movie that would not have happened had Peter Parker not chosen to throw himself into the midst of everything. He made a lot of really bad, irresponsible choices. And I felt like the movie went out of its way to not punish him for making those choices. Even when he saves everyone at the Washington Monument, none of that would have happened had he not been so irresponsible to give a very like valuable piece of alien technology, which he did not understand, and just kind of like leave it in the hands of his friend who obviously like shouldn't be handling it. Which friend is that? Ned. The, the whole scene where the elevator blows up in the Washington Monument, it was because Ed had that uh, little alien stone that he had recovered from one of the weapons that the bad guys dropped. And when it went through the x-ray machine, because of the radiation, it basically caused it to like send out this energy pulse that blew up their elevator. Not only did he like nearly kill all of his classmates, but he also like caused permanent damage to an American landmark. Well, let me just respond to some of this criticism if I can. Because it's hard for me to take all this in, but basically in my opinion this is a gigantic nitpick. This all had to do with, <laughs> this all had to do with the Well, I mean that is that is my role on this on this podcast is to be the gigantic nitpicker. <laughs> but this was one of their goals. You have to appreciate that you have goals when you go into a screenplay and that one of their goals was to take the tragedy out of the Peter Parker story and which I think is a mistake. I honestly do. And basically what you're doing is you're chastising them for 
every little nitpicky thing that has to do with the tragedy specifically. And I think that that's too much because they wanted to skip over the tragedy. Now, here's where I'll agree with you. If they don't get to tragedy for Spider-Man by number two and number three, then I will say that this is a failure of a series. Like, I want to see characters like Ned and Aunt May die now that I've seen this movie. But they were trying to do Spider-Man without the tragedy and with a certain levity. And I appreciate that. But I, I totally understand the nitpickiness of it because this is exactly what Arturo was telling me, my roommate. Uh, he grew up on the original Spider-Man movies, as did I. You know, he's a lot younger than me, but he grew up on the young, the earlier Spider-Man movies, and he feels like those are perfect, you know, especially the first one, especially the second one. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, that's one of the things about Spider-Man that makes him a more interesting character than, like, say, like, Superman, is that he has witnessed not just one, but two personal losses to him as... Not as a superhero, but him as an individual human being because of his actions as his superhero alter ego, which would be enough to, you know, basically discourage a normal person from ever donning the costume again. But because he realizes like, look, I have this incredible power that nobody else on the face of the fucking planet has, and the only way I can ever ever justify the loss of these people in my life is to go out and try to prevent like more needless loss to other lives but then in the midst of all the battles that he has like spider-man spends all of his time like his actions are informed by realizing that he has lost other people and knowing the weight of those tragedies on his soul and going out of his way at times and this is something that i've got to say like the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2 really, really does well is the best scene in that movie is the subway fight to where Peter Parker sits there and goes so far out of his own way to make sure that not a single person on that subway is lost. Because at that point, he realizes like what it feels like to lose a person. And so he, he knows that if one single person on that subway car dies that somebody else will have to endure the same pain that he does. And that's one of the things that that film does right, and that's one of the things that this film does not do right. That's my criticism, and honestly, it doesn't lower the enjoyment value that I had in watching the film. And when I go back and rewatch it, I'm still going to enjoy it at that same level. But I got to say, like, if you want to take it up from about an 8.5 to a 10 out of 10, that's what it needs to do. It needs to have this realistic scene where you have a 15-year-old high school student become a fucking grown-ass man by watching someone that he loves die before his eyes because of his poor, immature decision-making. Because that is something that is so germane to the Spider-Man character that even if you take out Uncle Ben, it's still something that has to happen to Peter Parker. And maybe they'll do it in the second film, but it's something that I feel like should have been in this first film. Well, also something that that uh, I'm pretty sure you're still missing is the two Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies that just happened before this one. Those movies will give you an, an even greater appreciation of this movie because they make the Spider-Man story look hard to tell, and this movie makes it look easy to tell. And that's ultimately that's the big difference. Yes, but that is a story for another day. A story for another day. All right, let's. You so want to go into talking about Baby Driver right now? 
Because I feel like there's... Yeah, let's move on to, to Baby Driver. Okay, I, I feel like there's parallels between that film and this one. Yeah, so let me do an intro if I may. Uh, Baby Driver, I don't know if our audience would, is going to be interested in, in this movie or it's going to be if they're going to have heard about it or what their interest level is going to be like. But for me, when an Edgar Wright movie comes out, I always take notice of it, but I don't necessarily jump as far as to say, oh, I'm going to love that movie or that's going to be a great movie. Kind of the same thing as like an M. Night Shyamalan. Like, he's a director that I totally recognize when one of his movies comes out. I'm thinking about the pedigree of it. I'm thinking about the timing of it, you know, whatnot. Edgar Wright, his latest history has been Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which me and Manny both agree on that that is a fabulous movie. It's, it's, it's a perfect movie. It's a great movie. It's a movie that you should definitely see and love. Do you agree with me on that one, Manny? Absolutely. That is one of my favorite Edgar Wright movies. Yeah. So we both agree on that one. That's a fantastic movie. Um, and it's one of those movies that, because everyone doesn't love it, it's safe for guys like me and Manny to say, oh, yeah, we love it. It's a perfect movie. You know, it, but if everyone loved it, it's the kind of movie that you would go in and nitpick little things about. So that's, that's, the, that's where the criticism lies with these kind of movies, is like if they're considered a favorable movie or not. If they're not a favorable movie, then you'll hear people talk endlessly about how good they are. And then when you go see them, you'll be a little disappointed by how it is. Because you'll say, well, it's not as good as those guys said. But, you know, they're they're using a slightly different meter. So that's what's important here. That movie is not really super well appreciated. So it's considered, like, an amazing, perfect, great movie. Um, now, when Baby Driver came out, my initial pedigree read of the movie was kind of like jason reitman movie after juno like you just say hey that's probably going to be a good movie because thank you for smoking was good juno was good you know and when you think about edgar wright you think about scott pilgrim you think about the Shaun of the dead the coronado trilogy and you think about ant-man and what could have been with ant-man and how decent plus ant-man was and how it could have been even better with edgar wright so this movie just came out everyone's raving about it it has a perfect score on rotten tomatoes when the first commercial came out, uh, the immediate box office numbers were good. But to me, this is Emperor's New Clothes. Like This is a movie that is nowhere near as good as the hype. This is basically a straight-up bad movie, in my opinion. Manny, what did you think? Well, I'm going to disagree with you that it was a straight-up bad movie. It was not a bad movie. Okay, go ahead. It was, it was a movie that had a concept, and I think if you... If you have any problem with the movie, it starts with just the concept and how that informed the decision made about the stories, about the characters, about how the relationships between the characters played out, and then how that affected the overall story of the movie. But I, I feel like this as an overall um, cinematic experience, it was definitely rewarding, and I'm glad that I went and watched it. I'm glad that I watched it in a theater. I enjoyed the hell out of it. But at the same time, like, it was a very, very flawed movie. And I've got to say, I, I love Edgar Wright as a director. And he's directed some of my all-time favorite films. Like, if you want to know something about me, I love Scott Pilgrim. And I think there's a lot of shared identity between Scott Pilgrim and Baby Driver. But one of my all-time favorite films ever. Like, one of the films that made me feel the best, just as, as a human being alive in the exact moment that I was in. When I watched The World's End and I walked out of the theater, like that was probably one of the best, I had one of the best feelings I'd ever experienced in my life. 
And at that moment, I was like, you know what? I think I love Edgar Wright. Like, I've never met him. I don't personally know him. But as a human being, because of how good he made me feel by creating a piece of art that I got to experience, I think I love him as a person. Like, I just love the fact that he exists and I exist at the same time and that there's able to be, like, some sort of interaction where he creates something and then I experience it. I did not have that same uh, sensation watching or walking away from Baby Driver. Well, Baby Driver has a lot of flaws. I mean... If you see some positive sides, I really appreciate that. You're a very kind, giving, generous, generous person. <laughs> but for me, all I saw was a movie about a kid with an iPod, headphones in his ear. He couldn't talk right. And I couldn't understand if that was a character choice or an acting choice. But the dude, he, he spoke as if he was 10%. 20%, 30%, maybe 60%. No, 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 no. You're, you're being a typical West Coast elitist where you're shitting on someone because they have <laughs> a Southern accent and you just hate the working white class people of America. No, I disregard that notion because I have a Southern accent. I'm from the South. <laughs> I know. I'm fucking with you. <laughs> you know, he you know, he talked like he had a hearing problem, but his character had a hearing problem. But the problem with that is that there's a a certain way to play a hearing problem where it's like it's interesting and it's attractive and it's still amazing and beautiful, and this was not it. This was like a muffled like, "Hi, you remember my name is Baby." Like, that was the whole movie with this guy. Mumble, 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 baby. No, you got to go back and rewatch it, because I think you had, like, something that was in your head that sort of, like, affected, like, the movie that you were seeing. Because, honestly, like, I thought that the first couple of times that he spoke, because he does not, like, the main character of this movie, the lead actor of this movie, does not have a lot of dialogue. No. The, the dialogue that he does have, the first couple of lines that he had, like, yeah, I was like, wait a minute, does he have, like, a speech impediment? Yes. Because I've known deaf people in my life, and I know, like, what a deaf person sounds like when they speak. But I think what you're just hearing is, like, you're hearing his, this actor's interpretation of a Georgia accent. Mm -hmm. And you were kind of taking that as, like, he's somebody that had either a speech impediment or was mentally slow. And that affected his speech patterns. But... That's something that they dismiss within this film was that like he makes that tape that makes an appearance both in the first act and third act of the film that he's not slow. He's not someone that has mental deficiencies. He is somebody that just has a disability that was the unfortunate side effect of being in a an accident when he was a child. Yes, yes, yes. But the fact that he can't hear so good. He has to wear headphones all the time. It makes him look like a fucking millennial with their iPods in their ears all the time. And you're like, hey, can you hear me? And they're like, yeah, just because I got headphones in my ear don't mean I can't hear you. Like, motherfucker, take the headphones out of your ear if you can hear me. Like, you just want to scream <laughs> at these people. See, that's your personal bias <laughs> rearing its head right now. Because what you are is the Jamie Foxx character in this movie where Jamie Foxx is like, man, he got those headphones in. He ain't even listening right now. He's like, this motherfucker dumb. And then like he takes the headphones out and he's like, he's going to go over here and then I'm going to be there and then this is going to happen and this is going to happen and then I'm going to pick them up and then we're going to go over here. We're going to change no. cars. <laughs> Let me do it. He, they have that whole scene <laughs> that like lets you know that like this guy's fully confident. No, 
pause. Let me do it. All right. All right. You no, let me do it. He goes, well, first Bob, we're going to jump out of the truck. And then when the truck comes around the corner, that's when we're going to jump out the bottom. And then when we're on the bottom, we're going to get the gun. And then the gun is going to jump around the first corner. And then we're going to do the talking. <laughs> You're turning him into an SNL character, man. You're turning him into an SNL character. That's not even right. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what I didn't like about this film. This film, as compared to Scott Pilgrim, because Scott Pilgrim was a film that relied heavily on the soundtrack to the movie, and it elevated the movie above. I mean, honestly, like, I have to give you credit. You're the one who convinced me to watch this movie, and that's what really built my appreciation for Edgar Wright as a filmmaker, was watching that movie and realizing, like, man, this movie is fucking good as shit. Like, I didn't even realize it in the moment. Yeah. I walked away from it, and I kept thinking about Scott Pilgrim. There's all these scenes that keep running through my head, and I really fucking like that movie. But for this movie, I think take Scott Pilgrim and then you know, reaches out in the direction of a modern musical film like La La Land. And, and there's movies that do this. Guardians of the Galaxy does it so well. Shits on it. Where they use, you know, modern like pop and pop rock songs to really inform the scenes that they were going for. And Edgar Wright said when the concept of this film like came to him, I wrote every scene based around the song that was playing as the scene was unfolding. It makes it like really interesting to watch it and to kind of like see how the interplay between the music and the lyrics of the music plays into the scene. But ultimately, like to me, it, it didn't it didn't make that transcendent jump that Scott Pilgrim does just because the struggles of the characters and like the things that they're going for and the fact that in Scott Pilgrim, it's like it's a good guy with flaws Whereas in this movie, it's a bad guy with good qualities. That was something that made it kind of difficult, realizing like he's somebody that ultimately, like, they even play this out at the end of the film. Like, they go through and they do a laundry list of, like, well, he did this good and he did that good. All these other things to where if he really was a bad guy, he wouldn't have done these things. You know, and instead he did the opposite thing that a good guy would do, but it was like, yeah, but he stole people's cars. He ran people over. Like he participated in like violent robberies that ended with people getting seriously injured. He's not a good guy at all. You know, and even if he did like suffer through like a terrible tragic loss in his youth, when he goes to prison, it's like, yeah, this guy should definitely go to prison. Like it's no surprise that he does at all. Baby heard every word you said, didn't you, baby? Yeah, what he said was that the character was a laundry list, of, and he went to prison, and he was a good guy. <laughs> baby, B-A-B-Y. Right, now I don't know if you're making fun of me or you're making fun of Baby. <laughs> I'm making fun of Baby. Here's, here's another thing that was crazy about this movie, and I do feel like, okay, have you seen the John Wick movies? Oh, I saw part one, liked it, not loved it, liked it. Okay. Because it was kind of bad, but it was bad in that defendable kind of way where you could say, yeah, this was terrible, but, terrible, but. <laughs> that's that's my review of John. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say, like, with Baby Driver, 
even though it does share a little bit of DNA with Spider-Man Homecoming in which it's two young white male characters that have almost like supernatural abilities um, and, and watching like how they use those supernatural abilities in the greater world around them. I think Baby Driver shares more DNA with the John Wick movies than it does with a superhero movie. And it's because in the John Wick movies, especially if you watch John Wick 2, the more they kind of reveal of the universe is that essentially like everybody in the John Wick universe is an assassin in the overall world. And that's why like the things that happen in that movie are allowed to take place because basically is this accepted thing of, oh, everybody's an assassin and this is just sort of how business takes place. Whereas in like Baby Driver, it's like, yeah, like we have these people that are just regular people and like we make it a point to show that they are regular people. Overall, it is sort of, well, there's this whole underworld that just exists within between levels of the world which the rest of us live in. And these are kind of the things that happen. And so you have like people like Bats and Buddy and Darling and Doc, who they're all like part of this world. And then you just kind of like accept Baby is like somebody that transcended from just the normal mortal people in the background world into this world of the criminal underground. B-A-B-Y, baby. <laughs> and it reminded me of like every time I go to a coffee shop and they're like, all right, what's the name? Manny, M-A-N-N-Y. Because if I don't spell it out for them, they'll be like, okay, Manny, M-A-N-Y. <laughs> I was like, motherfucker, I'm not a value. I'm a person. <laughs> Why did you hate this movie so much, though? I really, I really need to know. Like, other than you thought Baby was retarded. <laughs> that was a big part of it. I mean, okay, so a retarded Baby can drive a car well. Like, why can he drive a car well? Like, this, like, it didn't sit well with me that he was like, he's got a hum in the drum. That's why he can drive well, huh? It was like, a hum in the drum he can drive well? Like, say again? Like, well, I, I'm not following the logic of this. He has a hum in the drum so he can drive well. Still not getting it. What sense is it supposed to make? If you can't hear so good, hearing is a part of driving. You can drive 10% less good than anyone else that you know. The end. Yeah, but I think what they did is they gave you a little hint of it at one point in the movie where when he meets the waitress and she's singing that baby song and he's like, hey, what's that song? And then she tells him and he goes out, he buys the record, which is Super fucking hipster thing to do. Yeah. But then he comes back home, he puts the record on, and then his roommate slash stepfather, Joe, he starts playing it. Well, Joe's deaf, so Joe can't hear the music, but he can feel the music. <laughs> and you have this, and I love this. Like This is one of the things that made me really like this film, as opposed to like how you feel about it. But he reaches down and he touches the speaker, and then you see, like, you basically get the sensation that he feels the music to the point to where he can hear it in a way that, yeah, we would think of that as hearing, but to, to him, because he's lost the ability to hear things, this is the way that he hears things in a way that we wouldn't understand because we're used to the traditional sense of hearing. Okay, pause, pause, I have to speak. Okay, this is like if Quentin Tarantino, if you beat him with a hammer, a hundred times, he'd be like, well, the baby can't hear, and so the dad can't hear. It's like, it's such a retarded idea. It's like, the only way you could come up with it is if you were stone drunk, or like if you were being beat to death, and it was the idea you were coming with, like, as you were dying. Like, it's such a lame idea. It's so bad. 
It's awful. No, I got to disagree with you. I got to disagree with you, and I have scientific basis for disagreeing with you. You want to hear it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Radio Lab has an episode. Yeah, I listen to Radio Lab. Okay. Do you remember the the Batman episode? I don't know. What was it about? So they had a mini episode and they had a full episode. It started off as about people that had lost the ability to see and the different ways in which they were recapturing their ability to see. Yeah. And so one person actually like had their tooth removed. They implanted it into their eye socket and then they used their ocular nerve and they basically grew them a new eyeball. And if you Google search that eyeball made from a tooth, it's a gruesome fucking image, but it allowed this person to regain sight. But what they did with some of these other people, and this is one of the most interesting things, is they had one person where basically what they did is they implanted something into them to where there were sensations that were laid out across their tongue that basically transmitted information into their brain that basically reproduced an image. And the way that that person described it was because it was somebody who originally had sight, lost sight, and then through this process, they regained some some ability to see. All right, hold on, hold on. Just keep talking about this. I have to go throw up because this is so gross. Go ahead, keep talking. (laughs) But no, so basically like the sensations that went across this person's tongue, like it basically produced an image in their brain that was sort of like if you were to look at things and like those like lo-fi security images where it's basically it's like different values of dark blue to light blue to almost like white. Like, the person can actually regain some form of sight, but what it does is because they don't have the traditional form of sight, it does enhance their other abilities, and now, like, they can see things with their hands to where, like, a sighted person, they could, like, touch something with their eyes closed and not be able to tell what it is, but this person who does not have the normal sense of sight, like, they can touch things and automatically be like, oh, that's a set of keys, that's a ring, you know, that's a cell phone, that's a coffee mug and like be able to like quickly identify things using this extra sense. So I feel like with that scene, when Joe is sitting there and he reaches down to the speaker and he feels the music that he hears it in a way that you and I, because we can hear traditionally, we wouldn't hear it the same way. And they have it as something that comes back at the end of the film where baby's basically lost most of his hearing through like the various battles that he's had. And then he reaches down and he touches the speaker and it's when his mother is singing. And then all of a sudden he hears it the same way that you and I would hear it in the audience. All right. So let me, let me rebut to what it is I don't like about this movie. First of all, it, it, it kind of had the same or similar problem like Logan had. It's like you got this main character that's a driver. This movie did it better than Logan because we, we've known Logan for the past like 10 movies and we know that he's not the kind of guy that drives other people around. You know, at least we have something to compare that against. When you think of Wolverine, you think, oh, there's a guy who drives people around. Exactly, yeah, he drives people around. Wolverine? Yeah, drives people around, right? No, it's like that's not how you think of Wolverine. Not at all. But okay, so Baby Driver, he drives people around. That's that's one of his character traits. Okay. And you ask yourself, why does he do it? Why does he hang out with this brown-headed Kevin Spacey that obviously wants to be white-headed or gray-headed from House of Cards? Like, why do you have this obviously dyed, brown-haired old guy ordering you around, telling you to take all these jobs? They kind of give you this promise early on that, oh, we're going to explain this and it's going to be good. You know, it's going to make real good sense. Okay. And then when they go to explain it, they basically say that Baby Driver stole his car. His car had a bunch of stolen merchandise in it, so it 
in turn was worth a bunch of money. And so when Baby Driver started working for him, Baby Driver owed him all this money. And this is all back owed money. Okay, a couple problems with this idea. One, it's totally stupid. No, I gotta, I gotta disagree with you right there. I like the fact that they had like very minimal expository dialogue to explain why he was in debt to Doc. Okay, well, I hated it because I felt like the explanation was so shallow, so short-sighted. It was basically saying, well, yeah, this guy's already a criminal, you know, but they're trying to sell you on this, this idea that he's not so bad. You know, he listens to music and he plays the beat on all the steering wheel and he plays the beat on the window. Like, he's playing the beat all over the car. Like, he's not that bad of a guy. <laughs> but really, he's a total bad guy. You know, and like you said, he does end up in jail at the end of the movie, which I felt like that was a part of a series of bad decisions. Uh, I mean, I don't think he should get 20 years in prison or whatever he got. Like, yeah, he drove some bad guys around, but I'm for criminal punishment, like reform. You know, the idea that you put put every carjacker away for 20 years, it's like, you know, are you trying to teach them a lesson or are you trying to ruin their lives? Because there's kind of a difference, you know. So if you give the guy... Yeah, but at the same time, they said 25 years, but parole hearing in five years. So they led you to believe by the end of the movie, and I think it was totally a fantasy sequence at the end of the movie, but they led you to believe that after five years he got released, and then, you know, Deborah was waiting for him on the outside, and that his life, he was going to go and piece it back together, and now he no longer had to be a criminal. But even if any of that actually did happen, it's like the guy's starting from nothing, He's now got a criminal record. He's like 25 years old. You know, what life is this guy walking out into? Right. He doesn't have any parents around anymore. Yeah, there was that. And then also what they did with, they had three villain characters besides Kevin Spacey, who was, he was kind of the obvious big villain, but you didn't really know what to make of him because he was kind of friendly to, to Baby Driver. So, you know, he could either be the big villain or maybe he's not the big villain. He's the sub big villain. But the second big villain was Jamie Foxx, and the third big villain was John Hamm. And they did this really ham-fisted thing at the very beginning of the third act, where they just like really quickly killed off Jamie Foxx. Yeah. Yeah, they killed off Jamie Foxx in such a way where it was like, basically, Bats. Baby Driver had murdered him. You know, that, that was one charge that Baby Driver didn't happen to catch, was like, oh yeah, oh, by the way, you murdered Jamie Foxx, but... You know, I guess whatever at that point. But he basically murdered Jamie Foxx. Yeah, but... You know, he, he inflicted an intentional behavior. Here's where I'm going to disagree with, with your point of contention about that. Yeah. Was that they, they set up before that, Buddy was going to try to kill Bats yeah. uh, once their job was over. Yeah. Because you have, like, some dialogue between Darling and Buddy yeah. to where she's like, hey, remember when you stabbed that one guy that looked at me wrong? And he's like, yeah. And she was like, yeah, Bats just looked at me wrong. Are you going to do the same thing to him? And he's like, well, not before we do the job. And so you already have a sense that Bats' days were numbered. And Bats was a threat to our main character. And not just specifically to our main character, but to someone that our main character loved. So you understood Bats had to go. Would you rather like hope that Buddy takes him out before he does something to Deborah, Or was it more rewarding for you as the viewer to watch Baby Driver take it into his own hands and straight up murder the guy? And the only problem I have with that is I felt like it was kind of like a shitty way to like have a character that they'd really built up go out. 
Especially considering fucking Buddy had nine goddamn lives in this fucking movie. He would not fucking die. He was the goddamn... He was the T-1000. Well, but also there's another thing to consider, which is the fact that Baby Driver doesn't want to get his hands dirty. And Jamie Foxx even makes a reference to this early on, which I thought was intelligent. He says, you're going to get your hands dirty at one point, and then you're going to realize that you're just like us, or you know, you're going to realize how dirty it is down here once you get your hands dirty. And I thought it would have been a nice touch if somehow Buddy and Jamie Foxx's characters could have just warred against each other without Baby Driver necessarily like taking part in it. But instead, he full-on takes part, he kills both of them, and kind of a clumsy, you know, not-so-smooth, not-so-menacing, not-so-great kind of a way, in a way that's, that's more clumsy than anything. Yeah. It's so not rewarding, and all it does is incriminate the character that we've been trying to like find a way to root for the entire movie. Like That's what I didn't like about Baby Driver. Yeah, and i got to sit there and say with you, agree with you to some degree, and say that if there is something that I really want to criticize this movie for, especially in the third act, was the fact that, first of all, it dispatches somebody who had really spent a lot of time building up as a menacing, intimidating character as Bats. It's kind of the mistake that The Dark Knight Rises made, where you spend all this time building up Bane, and then you just basically kill him almost off screen. And it's kind of like, oh, that's the end of Bats. We don't have to worry about him anymore. And then when it comes to like him and Buddy, the fact that Buddy just wouldn't die. And then when he kills Buddy, it's not even like this rewarding. They try to make it seem like this rewarding thing. Mm-hmm. And they even like kind of do the diehard ending with the way that they kill him off. But even still with that, it wasn't something that I felt like, yeah, he got what he deserved. It was just sort of like, okay, now I know that this guy's dead for real. I know that he's probably not going to fucking come back at this point. And it was almost annoying for me the way that every time I didn't see him die on screen, I knew that he was going to pop back up in another scene. Mm-hmm. And then another thing that I thought was really weird, and this is all to do with third act, not even the overall movie itself, but I thought it was weird that... Kevin Spacey, somebody who sat there and basically like forced Baby into this life of crime because like what what you're saying about Baby earlier and the fact that he didn't want to get blood on his hands, it's like he didn't even want to do any of this shit. He had to do this stuff. He had no choice. Once he sits there and essentially like he screws this entire last heist and for Kevin Spacey to be this person that had to threaten Baby in order to get him to take part of this heist to then sit there and sacrifice his own life to allow Baby to escape. I was like, man, I don't understand like the character's motivation to have this sudden change of heart. I don't get where that's coming from at all. And maybe I need to go back and rewatch the movie again and see something there that I missed. But I don't feel like there is anything where it was like, oh, there's this like secret, like hidden, in-between-the-lines, father-son relationship between Doc and Baby. That wasn't there at all. Doc realized, like, this is a guy who is very valuable to me, and because I could kill him at any time and be justified by it, he's somebody that I can have in my hip pocket at any time. Okay, what is your 1 out of 100 score of this movie? Uh, 75, 78. Yeah, for me, it's like a 63, 62. Yeah. It's, a, it's between a C and a D. Or did I give it an F? No, no, it's not an F. 
It's like a D minus. It's like a D minus for me. It's a B minus to a C plus. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our thoughts on sequelitis uh, for both Spider-Man and Baby Driver. Do you have any last words to add for it? I would say if somebody's listening to this and they kind of skipped over all the spoilers that we have, definitely watch both these movies. Um, they're both entertaining movies. They're not a waste of time to watch at all. <laughs> Out of the two, like Spider-Man Homecoming is definitely the more rewarding movie yeah. to watch than Baby Driver. But oh, by far. If you wanted to make Spider-Man Homecoming a better movie, then you would take the consequences that are put on the character in Baby Driver, or you put them on Peter Parker in Spider-Man Homecoming? Well, I'm really glad that you didn't take my advice and not watch the movie. Like I told you, I didn't care for Baby Driver, and you watched (laughs) it anyway. And I wanted to say I really appreciate that, because I know that takes... Some effort. I mean, I know you don't 100% you know, agree with every opinion that I have, so I'm glad that you didn't agree with this one. I'm glad you saw it for yourself. I want everybody to see Baby Driver themselves. I want people to see Spider-Man Homecoming for themselves. Like, have your own opinion. Don't, don't trust ours. Don't trust mine. See the movie. Yeah, and I hope that there's people that have never seen the Coronetal of Blood trilogy, uh, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and one of my all-time favorite films, The World's End and Shaun of the Dead. If you're somebody that hasn't seen those films and your first introduction to Edgar Wright as a filmmaker is to watch Baby Driver, I hope that inspires you to go back and watch those films because they're incredibly rewarding and they're a hell of a lot of fun to watch. And the more times you watch those films, the more you notice in the foreground and the background of each of those and the better of a viewing experience it becomes for you. Yeah, and uh, thank you guys for listening to Sequelitis this week. That has been all we have to say. I'm Matt. And I'm Manny. Um, Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and hit us up, sequelitispodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, write us a quick email at sequelitispodcast at gmail.com so we can just know what you guys want us to talk about i do get a lot of text messages from people and a lot of emails about what they want to hear about but i have trouble like kind of sorting it all out so if you guys could put it in the email that would also be like helpful to just kind of keep it all straightforward uh one request that we have is to do planet of the apes and so that's one that we're going to try to talk about as soon as humanly possible yeah and i'd also like to go back and talk about the previous five spider-man films at some point so I think it would be great to cover that. Okay, yeah. You know, I would also love if we started getting a bunch of emails and we could do like Grandma's Virginity Podcast and start doing listener email. Yeah, emails, yeah. And that, we can read the emails in a funny voice. <laughs> but all right, until then, uh, you guys, this has been Sequelized. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, guys. B-A-B-Y, baby. B-A-B-Y, baby. Yeah, I've I've been liking the music bumps. You know, sometimes it's hard to think of something like totally clever or totally like NES or whatever, but... Yeah. Um, I, my favorite one was the one that I did with Beauty and the Beast, where it was the BR guest from the NES theme. I thought that was like very yeah manny, and then like just the way that it played, the way it 
the way it built up and the way it played out was like perfect. I just listened to that one the other day, Beauty and the Beast. That's a good one. Power Rangers, Beauty and the Beast is a really good episode. Really good. Oh yeah, it's really funny. Yeah, like because we rip on Power Rangers. <laughs> well, that's, that's the fun thing is like I noticed after we did Guardians of the Galaxy, like I felt really good about the conversation, but then when I listened back to it, I was like, man, this is not as much fun to listen to as other episodes like Power Rangers was way more fun to listen to and I was like that's because we're like just ripping the shit out of these movies because they suck <laughs> yeah it's just being like you stole this from over there you know you took this scene from Varsity Blues this scene from you know just just ripping this movie yeah. a new asshole and there was one thing I said that was kind of weird but I thought it was so true like there's two car crashes in that movie like there must have been one car crash in the original draft or in the early draft or something and they realized that, well, it wouldn't make sense for all five Power Rangers to immediately get in a car crash together. Yeah. But then they structured the plot in such a way where they needed two nearly identical car crash scenes, both with Jason at the wheel. And it's like, this is supposed to give me confidence <laughs> that he's a good leader? Like, I'm, I'm not getting it. <laughs> well, not only that, but like... Uh... Yeah, it's two car crashes in the first act of the freaking movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so it's like... it's, it's a, and, and both times it's Jason driving, and the second time he's driving because Billy was like, Hey, you could drive me, right? You wrecked a car. You know how to drive. Hey, wreck my car. You know how to wreck a car. <laughs> yeah, wreck my mom's car. <laughs> All right, let's... Uh... I'll help you to take that thing off your leg if you wreck my mom's car. <laughs> Hey, I'm under house arrest. No, you're under house arrest for trying to kill people. I'm retarded. Let's hang out. She's still got full coverage on her car, but I want her to get a new one. It's perfect. <laughs> she told me to be careful, but man, fuck that bitch. She can't tell me what to do. I'm blowing up mountains. What's she going to do? Tell my dad? He's dead. <laughs> Suck my dick, bitch. Jason's coming over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the Black Power Ranger. No, you're not. I'm the don't, Blue Power Ranger. Don't hang out with any of the kids from detention. <laughs> Shut up, Mom. I'll do what I want. I'm Billy. God, I gotta go back and rewatch that movie. It's such a bizarre fucking movie. Like, just, just, it has zero original ideas. <laughs> On top of, like, a... Which, like, it shouldn't be surprising. Yeah, it shouldn't be surprising being that it's, like... You know, it's resurrecting a, a, a property for purely nostalgic purposes to try and, like, capitalize on that. But then it's just, like, to sit there and go in the directions where it's, like, Varsity Blues and then it's The Breakfast Club and all this other shit, like, just thrown in there. And you're like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> it's so obvious, too. Like, don't even bother trying to hide it. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, whenever you're ready... Um, do, do we need to do a little preamble, or do you want to just count it down and get started? Uh, no, let's just let's count it down, and then I'll send you all this, like, pre. I got, like, five minutes of preamble. If you find anything funny in there, you can put that in there. Uh, Whoa, shit. This chair I was sitting in just broke. Oh, shit. Do you need a new chair? <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe that. I just felt it, like, come apart underneath me, and it, and it totally broke. Oh, shit. I'm staying at this Airbnb in Denver. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You're breaking people's shit. Dude, I'm just sitting in this chair. It wasn't even like I was, like, standing on it. <laughs> All right. All right, get a, get a new chair. Let's roll. 
All right, I got a new chair. Hopefully this one won't break in the middle of the podcast, but if it does, it'll be pretty funny shit to talk about.